There's a story by philosopher Basil Mitchell that illustrates the Christian faith, the parable of the resistance fighter in World War II. It goes something like this. Imagine I come to you in a bar one night and said, I gather you want to join the resistance. I'm glad I'm the local resistance leader. We'll talk for two hours tonight. If you put your trust in me and join the resistance, we'll never talk live. It's too dangerous. Sometimes you'll know exactly what I'm doing. It's obvious. Sometimes you won't. I might be in a Gestapo uniform, arresting one of our own. You won't know that I'm in disguise, releasing him out of sight, because he was about to be arrested by the real Gestapo. But at the end of the war, when the codes are broken and all of the secrets are explained, then we'll know why everything happened. There's some parallel in our experience as followers of Christ. There are times when we don't understand what God is doing or why it seems like he's not doing anything. As William Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. We may not be in the know when it comes to the Lord's grand plan, except for some broad outlines, but we keep on trusting. Well, this is not a new experience for God's people. For thousands of years, there were those who, contrary to hope and hope, believed. There were those who obtained a good testimony through faith, but did not receive the promise. There were those who, through many tribulations, entered the kingdom of God. David, as we find him in 2 Samuel 17, would be one of them. And we pick up where we left off last time, but here's a quick review leading up to today's passage. Remember, because he sinned against Uriah the Hittite and God ultimately, King David's under divine discipline. God struck that child that he had with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. The sword has ravaged his house as his lustful firstborn son, Amnon, fell victim to his vengeful brother, Absalom. Absalom, as it turns out, was the one prophet Nathan spoke of in chapter 12, verses 11 to 12. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. Absalom eventually turned against his own father, gained a huge following among the masses. Then I, the throne of Israel in Jerusalem. The news of this betrayal arrived, and to spare the city from destruction, David left it and moved towards the Jordan River. But as he fled, he needed time to create distance from Absalom. He's not exactly moving at a breakneck speed. It turns out he's about four miles northeast of Jerusalem in Bahurim. When Absalom arrived in Jerusalem, David's spy, Hushai, needed to buy more time for his king to get away. 
And that leads us to the last part of the previous chapter, chapter 16. These final few verses are directly relevant to chapter 17. Again, once Absalom arrived in Jerusalem, he sought and followed the advice of Ahithophel, great advisor to the king, which was to sleep with David's concubines, thereby completely break with his father and strengthen the resolve of his own followers. That brazen and atrocious counsel was accepted without hesitation. Why? Well, the last verse of chapter 16, verse 23, tells us why. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Chapter 16, verse 23 is a setup for chapter 17. I have two comments on this verse, one theological and one structural. First, it's going to take the act of God to defeat Ahithophel whose counsel was like the oracle of God. This is a man who hangs out with kings, whose feet have entered their courts. Only the Lord could beat him, so that he hangs himself and his feet dangle lifelessly as his fate. As it says in Proverbs 19.21, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Here's the structural note about chapter 16, verse 23. Notice the repeated phrase composed of two words, advice and ahithophel. Each of these two words are very important in 2 Samuel 17. And let me show you. First, first, go down to the second half of chapter 17, verse 14, and listen to the author's voice. It's this direct commentary on ahithophel's advice, how the wicked man's work is brought to nothing. This is God's answer to David's prayer back in chapter 15, verse 31. O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. But not only is the advice of Ahithophel ruined, Ahithophel himself is ruined. Look down at chapter 17, verse 23. The man returns to his city, Gilo, recall, that he left this city of his to join the growing conspiracy of Absalom. That was the first mention of Ahithophel back in chapter 15, verse 12. We've come full circle. Now that he's thwarted, we see him in his last moments, back home, ending his own life. The snake eats his own tail. Destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. So now I bring all this together. I observe three parts to 2 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 1 to 14, verses 15 to 23, and verses 24 to 29. Correspondingly, there are three principles here, parallel to the previous chapter, but if chapter 16 had to do with those who hinder David, chapter 17 has to do with those who hinder Absalom. As application for us, we need to rejoice when God uses fellow saints to help us in our journey. Like David, we can celebrate when, one, God uses skillful experts to accomplish his purposes. Verses 1 to 14 tells us how God uses skillful experts 
to accomplish his purposes. Two, God positions his loyal servants for our protection. That's verses 15 to 23. God positions his loyal servants for our protection. And three, God sends hospitable friends for our provision. That's verses 24 to 29. God sends hospitable friends for our provision. I'll start to talk about each of these truths after reading the corresponding verses. So first, 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 to 14. Please follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please take one of our pew Bibles as a gift from us to you. And if you're using the pew Bible, you'll find the passage in page 223. Verses 1 to 14, 2 Samuel 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. I will come upon him while he is, oh, sorry, make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he says too. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. So Hushai said to Absalom, The advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are enraged in their minds, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place, and it will be when some of them are overthrown at the first that whoever hears it will say, there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he has withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel, to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. So let's stop to consider how God uses skillful experts to accomplish his purposes. And Let's not overlook the amazing significance of verse 14. Remember, the narrator told us at the close of chapter 16 about the great influence of Ahithophel. Hushai stood no chance, not without the power of God behind him. He won only because the Almighty can do everything. No purpose of his can be withheld from him. 
it's only because the Lord intended to ruin Absalom that he ruined Ahithophel's good advice. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. And Ahithophel's good advice, to be sure, it was good advice. The more time you give David to rest and plan, the better chance he'd have to strategize and organize a counterattack. Ahithophel knew this. If he could move in haste, catch up to David while he's still on the west side of Jordan, not too far from Jerusalem, he'd make a quick end of, end of him. There would be minimal casualties. The people would unite under the new king and transition to the new reign would be smooth and relatively uneventful. But unlike last chapter, Absalom does not execute Ahithophel's plan right away. It's likely that the prince wanted the latest scoop on David, and it just happens that Hushai has been with David more recently than Ahithophel. Hushai first displays great courage. He flatly contradicts his rival, and then to support his own advice, he makes use of all tools of rhetoric. Look at all the word pictures. He frames David and his men not as wary, weak, and easily frightened as Ahithophel did, but like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Hushai goes on, if Absalom follows Ahithophel's advice, the initial casualties of war would discourage Absalom's men, even those lion-hearted ones. The Hushai suggests that the prince gather a large army from one end of the nation to the other, north to south extremes from Dan to Beersheba, respectively. He again employs some vivid images from nature. The soldiers of Israel would be like the sand that is by the sea. It quickly overwhelmed David like the dew that falls on the ground. Hushai gave the speech of his life as a skillful, skillful expert of rhetoric. The late great Warren Wiersbe makes this comment about Hushai's words. Quote, in modern terms, Ahithophel used cerebral approach and Hushai a visceral approach. Absalom heard what Ahithophel was saying, but he saw and felt what Hushai was saying. Ahithophel's counsel was wise, but it was rejected, and this led to his humiliation and death. Hushai's counsel was weak in military strategy, but it was accepted and led to Absalom's defeat. One more thing about Hushai's presentation. Probably the best part of it, it pops up Absalom's ego. The Ahithophel strategy makes Ahithophel look good. Notice all the eyes in verses 1 to 4. I will arise and pursue David. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people. But Hushai's plan puts Absalom at the head of the army as he goes out to battle in person, as his men stand behind them and become a collective we, they be unstoppable. They could even drag David's place of refuge down to the ravines. 
Now, while we praise Hushai's courage and wordcraft, I want to be clear that God deserves all the glory. Ultimately, he's the one who changes Absalom's mind. As Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. But the sovereign Lord does use skillful experts to accomplish his purposes. This was the answer to the prayers of David, not only the one back in chapter 15, but also Psalm 55, verse 9. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. So yes, I must say this. God used Hushai to hush up Ahithophel. Ahithophel is more like Ahithophel. Now for some quick applications. Most of us here probably won't be engaging in espionage and come to face-to-face with the most formidable advisor in the nation. Um, I am certain of this. God uses skillful expertise of all kinds to accomplish his purposes. That's why students just study hard and try their best. Workers, whatever you do, be excellent. And since communication is a major part of life, we should work on talking and writing. Now, as a pastor and as an older brother in Christ, I'm so proud of the way two teenagers stood up here recently to share their salvation testimony. They took courage. They put some real effort into it. And that should challenge all of us to offer the best version of ourselves for God's use and his glory. That's because even if we can't be like Hushai, we may have smaller roles to play. And that's a good segue to the next portion of 2 Samuel 17. And we continue with verses 15 to 23. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz stayed at Enrogel, for they dared not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go and tell King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom. But both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Bahurim, who had a well in his court. And they went down into it. Then the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? So the woman said to them, They have gone over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now it came to pass after they had departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled saddled a donkey and arose and went went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. 
But here we consider how God positions his loyal servants for our protection. Without doubt, Hushai is a major part of David's plan. But he's not, he's by no means the only part. Others must play their roles, however small they may be. Picture a telephone line. At the end of the line is Absalom. Hushai has his ear. Hushai relays what he learns to the priests at the same city in Jerusalem. The instructions are straightforward. Cross over the Jordan River as soon as possible, relentlessly, all night without stopping. Though Absalom favored Hushai's advice over Ahithophel's, who knows if the prince doesn't change his mind. Now the difficult part is getting the message out of Jerusalem. Hushai can't leave. The two priests can't leave. They may have the head, the mouth, and the ears, but they don't have the feet. Their sons, however, are young and fast, so they are the perfect messengers. But it's too dangerous for anyone to make a beeline, take the straight route from Jerusalem to the king in the wilderness. So Jonathan and Ahimaaz stayed near but outside of Jerusalem, specifically in Enrogel, south of the city, less than a mile away. Zadok and Abiathar sent a female servant to relay the message to their sons. Now, during this exchange, a young man spotted Jonathan and Ahimaaz and reported the suspicious activity to Absalom. The prince sends his servants to chase the two down. They make it to Bahurim. Recall that Bahurim is not that far past Mount of Olives. It's where Shimei, the son of Gera, persecuted David and his men earlier. So the two young men didn't get very far, only about four miles northwest of, um, northeast of Jerusalem. They could no longer rely on their feet to escape. They had to rely on a resident of Bahurim. Thankfully, not everyone there was like Shimei. Some were like Rahab, who hid the spies in Joshua too. Like Rahab in Jericho, this woman in Bahurim received the messengers, and sent the chasers out another way toward a certain local stream. Now, again, this appears to be a moral conundrum. There's clearly lying here. I talked about this a little last time. But here I'll just say this, that we can commend the faith and loyalty of this woman without recommending her specific action. So commend her faith and loyalty but I can't recommend her specific action. Our job is not to be sovereign over good and evil, but to depart from evil and do good. So God does mysteriously use this deception without approving of it. Now, after Absalom's servants were gone and gave up their search, the two men continued their journey, locate the king, and deliver the message from Hushai. In turn, David and and those with him heed the urgent warning and cross over the Jordan River with vigor and haste. With David creating further distance from Jerusalem, Ahithophel's plans completely ruined. There's no chance for him now. Once David had time and space to organize his own army, it's game over. The old man knew better than anyone else that Absalom would eventually lose. 
There's nothing left for him to do but go home, assess his material possessions, and take his own life. As I said earlier, Ahithophel's advice was defeated. Now Ahithophel himself is defeated. This happened because God positioned his loyal servants for David's protection. So let's pause for another application here. It's hard, it may be hard to relate to someone like Hushai, but you might appreciate the minor characters in verses 15 to 23. The priest, their sons, the female servant, the couple at Bahurim, all had their roles to play. God connected them like links in a chain, united them for his purpose. When I think of such teamwork in our context, I think of 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, that diversity, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversity of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Think of how God has granted you talents and spiritual gifts to accomplish his purposes and build up his people. And God works through his service, not only for protection, but also for provision. Let's see how in the final portion of 2 Samuel 17. That's verses 24 to 29. Then David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab, this Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Jeruiah, Joab's mother. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the people of Ammon, Makir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogelim, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd, for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So here we see how God sends hospitable friends for our provision. And so, but first we've got to talk about the enemies before we talk about friends. So with Ahithophel gone, Absalom needed another right-hand man, and settled for Amasa. Like Joab, Amasa's David's nephew, there's not much revealed about Amasa's parents besides his mother's connections to Joab's mother. We'll see his rivalry with Joab later. For now, he, we see him join Absalom and is meant to cross over the Jordan into an area generally known as the land of Gilead. Meanwhile, David settled in Mahanaim. It's an ideal location in distance, about 66 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's also near a water source, the Jabbok River, and the place has a long history. It goes back all the way to Genesis 32, when angels met Jacob. Later, around the conquest, it became a city for the Levites in the territory of Gad, Closer in time and relevance to David, we last saw this city back in 2 Samuel chapter 2. When David was crowned in Hebron over Judah, Abner, the commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, 
Saul's son and made him a puppet king and they were stationed at Mahanaim. Abner fortified the city. Most likely there were still remnants of his military work probably there even after Abner and Ishbosheth were gone. And the inhabitants now loyal to David opened up the place for him. And it turns out that they weren't the only ones loyal to David. The king learns by experience how God sends hospitable friends for our provision. Three are mentioned in verse 27. Shobi might be the most surprising of the three. He's not only an Ammonite among the enemies of Israel. He's not only from Rabbah, the royal city of the Ammonites. He's an Ammonite prince the son of the former king Nahash, the brother of Hanun, who earlier humiliated David's messengers and rebelled against Israel. The Ammonites were subdued, subjects, yet here's Shobi. He's not resentful, not opportunistic. He's coming out to support David when he looks down and out. Next, we have Makir, the son of Amiel. We first met him back in chapter 9 where we learned that Mephibosheth was staying with Makir in Lodabar. His name suggests he's from the Manasseh tribe who possessed the land of Gilead. Finally, we have Barzillai the Gileadite, a wealthy old man of 80 years. His loyalty to David will impress you as you keep reading. Not only does he provide for the king now, he'll escort him back towards Jerusalem after Absalom's defeat. He'll also send Kimham, his servant, to serve the king. Barzillai's kindness will be remembered by kings and his descendants alike. Our Lord remembers such kindness as well when it's motivated by faith. Again, some applications. Now, hospitality It's not limited to the elders of the church or gifted ladies. Paul and Peter expected it from all believers. It's the same today. We can work together to be a hospitable church. We can combine resources and energy and be like Barzillai, Shobi, and Makir. I also see that not only does hospitality provide for the needs of the saints, There's this added bonus. It opens up opportunities for evangelism. Some of you may be intimidated by the idea of accompanying me and others to meet strangers at parks and malls. I'm not saying it's for everyone. But here's something you can do. Consider how you may open the door of your home so that God would open to you a door for the word. And we try to be hospitable, even Sundays here as we gather. And speaking of the word, those who may be unbelievers here, maybe listening to this recording later, we're convinced the most loving thing we can do for you is to share the gospel with you, which is the good news. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. More precious than money, food, or clothes, anything we can give you materially. The Bible is not merely about a mortal king of Israel about 3,000 years ago. It's about the greater king, 
the greatest king, the king of kings. It's about Jesus born 2,000 years ago. The most important decision in your life is this. How do you relate to him? Here's a set of questions for you from the missionary Francis Havergal. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers, other lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? I hope the answer to these questions will be you. Join a more worthy cause than the one led by David. Receive a more distinguished honor than the one reserved for his servants. Here's how to enlist in the Lord's army. He first realize and admit that your carnal mind is enmity against God. By default and because of our faults, we're on the wrong team. From the beginning, we're opposed to God as his enemies. We belong to the power of darkness, dead in trespasses and sins we are, sons of disobedience, by nature children of wrath. We've proven this to be true over and over again by breaking his laws, lying, lusting, stealing, blaspheming his name. This is who we are by nature. That's why we must be born again. Realize that there's only one perfect man, Jesus, the Son of God. He is God. He came to earth, lived a sinless life. Yet he was betrayed by his friend, Judas Iscariot, someone like Ahithophel in so many ways. Through that betrayal, Jesus was crucified like a criminal, though he did nothing wrong. He willingly died to pay the penalty of sin, the punishment that we deserve. But then in three days, he rose again, proved himself to be alive, ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Now's the time to surrender. Stop the rebellion. Lose to Christ to gain all. Repent. Turn away from self-righteousness and self-indulgence. You cannot save yourself from hell. Only trust in Jesus. Place your hope of heaven in his promises. Receive eternal life as a gift. God saves you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you've been living like Absalom and Ahithophel up to this point, know that it's not too late to stop. Come to Christ and find forgiveness of sins. 